Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this episode is called The Decline of the Crusaders, Episode 12, The Fall of Jerusalem. In the last episode, we heard about the Battle of Hattin in 1187, when Saladin defeated the main Crusader army by cleverly luring it into a very arid region of what is now northeastern Israel, surrounding it and then depriving the Crusaders of water so that despite a desperate and courageous attempt to break out, he was able to force the exhausted army to surrender, capturing King Guy and most of the main Crusader leaders. However, two Crusaders did succeed in breaking out, Balian of Ibelin and Raymond of Tripoli. Balian then took command of Jerusalem and tried to hold it against Saladin. Now, I just mentioned this story is actually told in a favourite film of mine, which is Ridley Scott's The Kingdom of Heaven, made in 2005, where Balian is played by Orlando Bloom. The Balian in the film isn't entirely historically accurate, but nevertheless he captures a lot of what the real Balian was like, who, as you will hear, was willing to risk his own life to try to save Jerusalem and its inhabitants. But I think the most extraordinary person of all has to be Saladin, since again, as you'll hear, in victory he showed compassion and generosity to the Crusaders, in striking contrast, of course, certainly to the behaviour of the First Crusaders when they captured Jerusalem in 1099. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. After his glorious victory at the Battle of Hattin in 1187, it only remained for Saladin to occupy the fortresses of the Holy Land. On the 5th of July, knowing that no help could come to her, the Countess of Tripoli surrendered Tiberius to him. He treated her with the honour that she deserved and allowed her to go with all her household to Tripoli. Then he moved the bulk of his army down to Acre. The Seneschal Jocelyn of Courtenay, who commanded the city, thought only of his own safety. He sent a citizen called Peter Bryce to meet Saladin when he arrived before the walls on the 8th, offering to surrender if the lives and possessions of the inhabitants were guaranteed. To many in the city, this tame capitulation seemed shameful. There was a short riot in which several houses were burnt, but order was restored before Saladin took formal possession of Acre on the 10th. He had hoped to persuade most of the Christian merchants to stay there, but they feared for the future and emigrated with all their movable possessions. The immense stores of merchandise, silks and metals, jewels and weapons that were abandoned were distributed by the conquerors, particularly by Saladin's young son Al-Afdal, to whom the city was given, amongst their soldiers and comrades. The great sugar factory was pillaged by Takiyadin to Saladin's annoyance. While Saladin remained at Acre, detachments of his army received the submission of the towns and the castles of Galilee and Samaria. At Nablus, Balian's garrison held out for a few days and obtained honourable terms when it surrendered, and the castle of Turon resisted for a fortnight before its garrison capitulated. There was little other resistance. Meanwhile, Saladin's brother, Al-Adil came up from Egypt and laid siege to Jaffa. The town would not yield to him, so he took it by storm and sent all the inhabitants, men, 
women and children into captivity, most of them found their way to the slave markets and harems of Aleppo. When Galilee was conquered, Saladin moved up the Phoenician coast. Most of the survivors from Hattin had fled with Balian to Tyre. It was well garrisoned and the great walls that guarded it from the land were too formidable. When his first attack failed, Saladin passed on. Sidon then surrendered to him without a blow on the 29th of July. Its lord, Reynald, fled to his impregnable inland castle of Beaufort. Beirut attempted to defend itself but capitulated on the 6th of August. Jebel surrendered a few days later on the orders of its lord, Hugh Ebriaco, whom Saladin released on that condition. By the end of August, there only remained to the Crusaders south of Tripoli itself, Tyre, Ascalon, Gaza, a few isolated castles, and of course the holy city of Jerusalem. In September, Saladin appeared before Ascalon, bringing with him his two chief captives, King Guy and the Grand Master Gerard. Guy had been told that his liberty could be bought by the surrender of Ascalon, and on his arrival before the walls he harangued the citizens, telling them to give up the struggle. Gerard joined his plea to Guy's, but they answered them both with insults. Ascalon was bravely defended. The siege cost Saladin the life of two of his emirs, but on the 4th of September the garrison was forced to capitulate. The citizens were allowed to leave with all their portable belongings. They were escorted by Saladin's soldiers to Egypt and housed in comfort at Alexandria until they could be repatriated to Christian lands. At Gaza, whose Templar garrison was obliged by the laws of the order to obey the Grand Master, Gerard's command that it should surrender was carried out at once. In return for the fortress, he obtained his liberty. But King Guy was kept for some months longer in prison, first at Nablus and later at Latakia. The day that Saladin's troops entered Ascalon, there was an eclipse of the sun, and in the darkness Saladin received a delegation from the citizens of Jerusalem, which he had summoned to discuss terms for the holy city's surrender. But there was no discussion. The delegates refused to hand over the city where their God had died for them. They returned proudly to Jerusalem, and Saladin swore to take it by the sword. In Jerusalem, an unexpected helper had arrived. Balian of Eblin, who was with the Frankish refugees at Tyre, sent to ask Saladin for a safe conduct to Jerusalem. His wife, Queen Maria, had retired there with her children from Nablus, and he wished to bring them down to Tyre. Saladin granted his request on condition that he only spent one night in the city and did not bear arms. When he came there, Balian found the patriarch Heraclius and the officials of the military orders trying to prepare the city's defence, but there was no leader whom the people trusted. They all clamoured that Balian should stay and lead them, and they wouldn't let him go. Deeply embarrassed, Balian wrote to Saladin to explain the violation of his oath. But Saladin was always courteous to an enemy that he respected. He not only forgave Balian, but himself sent an escort to convey Queen Maria with her children, her household and all her possessions down to Tyre. 
With her went Balian's young nephew, Thomas of Ebelin, and the young son of Hugh of Jebel. Saladin wept to see these children, heirs in vanquished grandeur, pass through his camp into exile. In Jerusalem, Balian did what he could. The population was swollen by refugees from all the neighbouring districts, few of them of use as fighters. For every man there were fifty women and children. There were only two knights in the city, so Balian knighted every boy over sixteen that was born of a noble family, and thirty men of the bourgeoisie. He also dispatched parties to collect all the food that could be found before the Muslim armies surrounded the city. He took over the royal treasury in the money that Henry II had sent to the hospital. He even stripped the silver from the roof of the Holy Sepulchre. Arms were given to every man that could bear them. On the 20th of September, Saladin encamped before the city and began to attack the north and northwest walls. But the sun was in his soldiers' eyes and the defences there were too strong. After five days, he moved his camp. For a short moment, the defenders believed that he had lifted the siege. But on the morning of the 26th of September, his army was established on the Mount of Olives and his sappers, flanked by his horsemen, were mining underneath the wall near the gate of the column, not far from the spot where Godfrey of Lorraine had broken into the city 88 years before. By the 29th there was a great breach in the wall. The defenders manned it as best they could and fought furiously, but they were too few to hold it for long against the hordes of the enemy. The Frankish soldiers wished to make one tremendous sortie and, if need be, die. But the patriarch Heraclius had no mind to be a martyr. If they did so, he told them, they would leave their women and children to inevitable slavery, and he could not give his blessing to so impious an action. Balian supported him. He saw the folly of wasting more lives. On the 30th of September, he went himself to the enemy camp to ask Saladin for terms. Saladin had the city at his mercy. He could storm it when he wished, and within the city he had many potential friends. The pride of the Latin church had always been resented by the orthodox Christians who formed the majority of the humbler folk in the city. They had little love for the crusaders, and Saladin now made contact with these orthodox communities in the city, and they promised to open the gates for him. Their intervention was not needed, however, for when Balian came before his tent, Saladin declared that he had sworn to take Jerusalem by the sword, and only unconditional surrender would absolve him from that oath. He reminded Balian of the massacres committed by the Christians in 1099. Was he to act differently? The battle raged as they spoke, and Saladin showed that his standard had now been raised on the city wall. But at the next moment his men were driven back, and Balian warned Saladin that unless he gave honourable terms, the defenders in desperation before they died would destroy everything in the city, including the buildings in the temple area sacred to the Muslims, and they would slaughter the Muslim prisoners that they held. Saladin, so long as his power was recognised, was ready to be generous, and he wished Jerusalem to suffer as little as possible. He consented to make terms and offered that every Christian should be able to redeem himself at the rate of ten dinars a man, five a woman, and one a child. Balian then pointed out that there were 20,000 poor folk in the city who could never afford such a sum. Could a lump sum be given by the Christian authorities that would free them all? Saladin was willing 
to accept 100,000 dinars for the whole 20,000, but Balian knew that so much money could not be raised. It was arranged that for 30,000 dinars, 7,000 should be freed. On Balian's orders, the garrison laid down its arms, and on Friday, the 2nd of October, Saladin entered Jerusalem. It was the 27th day of Rajab, the anniversary of the day when the prophet in his sleep had visited Jerusalem and been taken thence to heaven. The victors were correct and humane. Where the crusaders, 88 years before, had waded through the blood of their victims, not a building now was looted, not a person injured. By Saladin's orders, guards patrolled the streets and the gates, preventing any outrage on the Christians. Meanwhile, each Christian strove to find the money for his ransom, and Balian emptied the treasury to raise the promised 30,000 dinars. It was with difficulty that the hospital and the temple could be made to disgorge their riches, and the patriarch and his chapter looked after themselves alone. It shocked Saladin to see Heraclius paying his ten dinars for his own ransom, and then leaving the city bowed down by the weight of the gold that he was carrying, followed by carts laden with carpets and plate. Thanks to the remains of Henry II's donation, the 7,000 poor were freed, but many thousands could have been spared slavery if only the military orders and the church had been more generous. Soon, two streams of Christians poured out through the gates. The one of those whose ransoms had been paid by themselves or by Balian's efforts. The other consisted of those who could afford no ransom and were going into slavery. So pathetic was the sight that Saladin's brother, Al-Adil, turned to him and asked for a thousand of them as a reward for his services. They were granted to him, and he at once set them free. The patriarch Heraclius, delighted to find so cheap a way of doing good, then asked that he might have some slaves to liberate. He was granted 700, and 500 were given to Balian. Then Saladin himself announced that he would liberate every aged man and woman. When the Frankish ladies who had ransomed themselves came in tears to ask him where they should go, for their husbands or fathers were slain or captive, he answered by promising to release every captive husband, and to to the widows and orphans he gave gifts from his own treasury to each according to her estate. His mercy and kindness were in strange contrast to the deeds of the crusaders of the first crusade. However, not all of Saladin's army behaved in this way. Some of his emirs and soldiers were distinctly less kindly. There were tales of Christians being smuggled out in disguise by Muslims who then blackmailed them of all that they possessed. Other Muslim lords professed to recognise escaped slaves and charged high ransoms privately to let their victims go. But wherever Saladin found such practices, his punishment was sharp. The long line of refugees moved slowly down to the coast, unmolested by Saladin's army. They travelled in three convoys, the first led by the Templars, the second by the Hospitallers, and the third by Balian and the Patriarch. At Tyre, which was already overcrowded with other refugees, only fighting men could be admitted. Near Botron, a local baron, Raymond of Niffin, robbed them of many of their goods. They moved on to Tripoli. There, too, 
earlier refugees filled the city and the authorities, short of food, would admit no more and close the gates against them. It was not until they reached Antioch that they found any resting place and even there they were not allowed willingly into the city. The refugees from Ascalon were more fortunate when Italian merchant captains refused to take them onto Christian ports without heavy fees. The Egyptian government refused to allow the ships to sail until they accepted them for free. The Orthodox Christians and the Jacobites remained in Jerusalem. Each had officially to pay a capitation tax in addition to his ransom, though many of the poorer classes were excused the payment. The wealthier among them bought up much of the property left vacant by the Crusaders' departure. The rest was bought by Muslims and by Jews whom Saladin encouraged to settle in the city. When the news of Saladin's victory reached Constantinople, the Byzantine emperor Isaac Angelus sent an embassy to Saladin to congratulate him and to ask that the Christian holy places should revert to the Greek Orthodox Church. After a little delay, his request was granted. Meanwhile, many of Saladin's friends had urged him to destroy the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but he pointed out that it was the site, not the building, that the Christians venerated, and that they would still wish to make pilgrimages there, nor did he want to discourage that. In fact, the church was only closed for three days. Then Frankish pilgrims were admitted on payment of a fee. The Christian refugees had not left the city before the cross over the Dome of the Rock was taken down and all signs of Christian worship removed and the Mosque Al-Aqsa cleaned of all traces of its occupation by the Templar Knights. Both buildings were sprinkled with rose water and dedicated once more to the service of Islam. On Friday the 9th of October, Saladin was present with a vast congregation to give thanks to his God in the mosque. With the recovery of Jerusalem, Saladin's chief duty to his faith had been performed, but there were still some Frankish fortresses to be taken. The Lady Stephanie of Outre-Jordain had been among the ransomed captives at Jerusalem, and she had asked Saladin for the release of her son, Humphrey of Turon. He agreed on condition that her two great castles were surrendered to him. Humphrey was sent from his prison to join her, but the garrisons of her two castles at Carac and Montreal wouldn't obey her orders to surrender. As she had failed in her bargain, she sent her son back into captivity. Her honourable action pleased Saladin, who gave Humphrey his liberty a few months later. Meanwhile, Al-Adil and the Egyptian army laid siege to Karak. The siege lasted for more than a year. For many months, the defenders were near to starvation. Their women and children were turned out to fend for themselves. Some indeed were sold by their menfolk to the Bedouin in return for food. Only when the last horse in the fortress had been eaten did the castle surrender at the end of 1188. Montreal, less closely pressed, held out for some months longer. Further north, the Templar castle of Safed surrendered on the 6th of December 1188 after a month's heavy bombardment, and the hospitallers at Beaver, high over the Jordan Valley, followed suit a month later. The Chateau Neuf at Unin had been occupied some time before. Beaufort, where Reynald of Sidon had taken refuge, was saved by his diplomacy. He was a learned man with a passionate interest in Arabic literature, he came to Saladin's tent, professing himself willing to surrender his castle and retire to Damascus if he were allowed three months to settle his affairs. He even hinted that he might embrace Islam. So charming was his conversation that Saladin was convinced of his good faith, only to find out too late that the truce that he had granted had been used to strengthen the castle defences. In the meantime, Saladin had moved into the territory of Tripoli and Antioch. Raymond of Tripoli died about the end of 1187. Soon after his 
his escape from Hattin, he had fallen ill of pleurisy, though men thought that his sickness was due to melancholy and shame. Many of his contemporaries considered him a traitor whose selfishness helped to ruin the kingdom of Jerusalem. But William of Tyre and Balian of Ibelin both were his friends and defenders. His real tragedy was the tragedy of all of the Frankish colonists of the second and third generations who, by temperament and from policy, were ready to become part of the Oriental world but were forced by the fanaticism of their newly arrived Western cousins to take sides, and in the end they could not but take sides with fellow Christians. He had no children, so he bequeathed his county to his godson Raymond, son of his nearest male relative, Prince Bohemond of Antioch, but he stipulated that should a member of the House of Toulouse come to the east, the county must be his. Bohemond accepted the inheritance for his son, thus substituted the boy's younger brother Bohemond for fear that Antioch and Tripoli together might be more than one man could defend. Indeed, there was soon a little left of the inheritance. On the 1st of July 1188, Saladin swept through the Bukaya with reinforcements newly arrived from Sinjar. He passed by the Hospitaller Fortress at Crack, which he thought too strong to attack. He moved towards Tripoli, but the arrival there of the King of Sicily's fleet deterred him. He turned north at Tortosa. He stormed the town, but the Templar's castle held out against him. He pressed on under the walls of Markab, where the Hospitallers tried to dispute his passage. Jabala surrendered on Friday the 15th of July, Latakier on Friday the 22nd. Latakier had been a lovely city with its churches and palaces dating from Byzantine times. The Muslim chronicler Imad Eddin, who was with the army, wept to see it pillaged and ruined from Latakia Saladin turned inland to Sayoun. The vast castle of the Hospitallers was thought to be impregnable, but after a few days of fierce fighting, it was taken by assault on Friday the 29th of July. On Friday the 12th of August, the garrison of Bakashokra, well protected though the castle was by stupendous ravines, surrendered when no help was forthcoming from Antioch. On Friday the 19th, the town of Saminia fell. A few days later, on the 23rd, Burzi, the southernmost of the Orontes castles, capitulated. Its commander was married to the sister of Saladin's secret agent, the Princess of Antioch. He and his wife were allowed their liberty. On the 16th of September, the Templar fort of Darsbak in the Amanus Mountains surrendered, and on the 26th, the castle of Bagras, which commanded the route from Antioch into Cilicia. But Saladin's army was now weary, and the troops from Sinjar wished to go home. When Prince Bohemond begged for a truce, which recognised all the Muslim conquests, Saladin granted it to him. He he could, he thought, finish off the task whenever he chose, for all that was left to Bermond and his sons were their two capitals of Antioch and Tripoli and the port of St. Simeon, while the Hospitallers kept Markab and Crack and the Templars Tortosa. But further south there was one other city that Saladin had not taken, and therein he made his great mistake. The refugee barons of Palestine were crowded now in Tyre, the strongest city of the coast, joined to the mainland only by a narrow sandy peninsula, across which a great wall was built. Had Saladin pressed an attack on Tyre as soon as Acre was his, even this wall could not have stopped him. But he delayed just too long. Reynald of Sidon, who then commanded the city, was negotiating the surrender, and Saladin had even sent two of his banners to be displayed on the citadel, when on 14th of July 1187, ten days
days after the Battle of Hattin, a ship sailed into the harbour. On board was Conrad, son of the old Marquis of Montferrat and brother of Queen Sibylla's first husband. He had been living at Constantinople but had been involved in a murder there, so he sailed secretly away with a company of Frankish knights to pay a pilgrimage to the holy places. He knew nothing of the disasters in Palestine and made for Acre. When his ship arrived off the port, the captain was surprised not to hear the bell that was rung whenever a sail was sighted. He felt that something was wrong, so did not cast anchor. Soon, a sloop with a Muslim port official aboard came alongside, and Conrad, pretending to be a merchant, asked what was happening and was told that Saladin had taken the city four days before. His horror at the news aroused the Muslim's suspicion, but before he could raise an alarm, Conrad had sailed away up the coast to Tyre. There he was welcomed as a deliverer and put in charge of the defence of the city. Saladin's peace terms were rejected and his banners cast into the moat. Conrad was vigorous, ruthless and brave. He saw that the city could be held until help came from the west and he was confident that on the news of the fall of Jerusalem, help would surely come. When Saladin appeared a few days later before Tyre, the vigour of the defence was too much for him. He brought down the Marquis of Montferrat from Damascus and paraded him before the walls, threatening to kill him were the city not given up. But Conrad's filial piety was not strong enough to deflect him from his duty as a Christian warrior. He was unmoved and Saladin, with his usual kindliness, spared the old man's life. He raised the siege to march instead against Ascalon. When next he appeared before Tyre, in November 1187, its fortifications had been strengthened, some naval and military reinforcements had arrived, and the narrow terrain prevented him from using his men and siege machines to any advantage. Ten Muslim ships were brought up from Acre, but on the 29th of December, five of them were captured by the Christians, and a simultaneous attack on the walls was driven back. At a council of war, Saladin listened to those of his emirs who pointed out that his troops needed a rest. The winter was wet and cold, and there was illness in the camp. On New Year's Day, 1188, Saladin disbanded half his army and retired to conquer the inland castles. Conrad's energy and confidence had saved the city and with it the continuance of the Christian kingdom. Saladin was later to regret very bitterly his failure to capture Tyre, but his achievements had already been tremendous. Whether his triumphs were due to the inevitable response of Islam to the challenge of the intruder Franks, or to the far-sighted policy of his great predecessors, or to the quarrels and the follies of the Franks themselves, or to his own personality, he had given proof of the force and the spirit of Islam. At the horns of of Hattin and the gates of Jerusalem. He had avenged the humiliation of the First Crusade and he had shown how a man of honour should celebrate his victory. (music) 
And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on the podcast. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the news of the fall of Jerusalem was received in the West. And I'll try to get this out next Thursday instead of the normal Saturday ahead of the Christmas holidays. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>